Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, Journey Church. Uh, good morning for those of you who are joining us online or sometime later on in the week. Um, I see a number of you that I haven't seen, some for three years, and it's so good to see you. So good to have you back uh, today. Um, several that I've been praying for for the last couple weeks, I see you here. And uh, just to let you know that we are delighted to have you here this morning as we're not only celebrating the season, but every Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. So good to be together. We need each other. We need this. It's a, even if we don't do well in our, in our week, we need a reset. And quite often it's the gathering of believers that is such a, a wonderful, transformational, refreshing reset. So that's, that's wonderful. I also want to let just, just let you know today, today is, is one of our monthly family worships where we say, come one, come all, bring the children. I know we got some, some care for babies, but even babies in here are welcome. And so if you're, uh, if you're testy and um, uh, nervous uh, or easily distracted, tuck in your toes, ask Jesus for the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to do fine, okay? Um, one last uh, welcome, and that is uh, Doug and Linda Town. Doug and Linda, ra wait, raise your hand right here. Doug and Linda are some of our, our uh, ad hoc staff members, meaning they don't come to staff meeting, they don't work for the church. Uh, the church works through them. We've been supporting the towns for decades as Wycliffe Bible translators, and it's so good. We have about 12 or 13, and uh, somewhere around the average of, of, of 10 cents on the dollar. I'm not going to like say, you know, stand behind that, but we're a generous church to global outreach, both local and global. These are some of our choice uh, servants that we've been supporting, so make sure you say hi to the towns if uh, you get an opportunity after the service, okay? Good to have you guys. Now, let me launch into this. Some of you actually know me, and you hang out with me from time to time, or uh, I tell you my little philosophies on, my, uh, on life. I tell you my stories. A few of you actually know Jim's theory or theology of fun. Type 1, type 2, and type 3 fun. Okay, a few of you know it. Maybe some of the college guys, I don't know. But, but this is... This is uh, I don't know that I invented this, but I definitely developed it. It's not copywritten by Jim Roden, but it should be. Type 1, type 2, and type 3 fun. Okay? So here they are. Type 1 fun is fun while you're doing it. It is never not fun when you're actually experiencing type 1 fun. So a roller coaster, wake surfing, downhill snow skiing, marital bliss, that's code word because we got kids with us. It's never not fun. It's not bad. There's, no, there's not a bad version of it. Okay, that's type one. Type two fun is quite discomfortable, uncomfortable while you're doing it. Uh, it actually might be very painful. But you're really glad you did it when it's over. Right? So uh, things like a hard workout or distance running, running a marathon. My son's running a marathon, and I'm thinking about jumping in with a damaged Achilles tendon because it sounds like fun to me, but not while I'm doing it. Okay, there's other things like an advanced degree. 
writing a book or a dissertation, getting uh, certified as a CPA. You go, you're crazy. Yeah, but when you're done with it, you're so glad you did it. And then there's type three fun. And type three fun involves genuinely risking life and limb. And if you survive type three fun, you discover that it, you've got a story to tell. And it's transformational. You go, that's not fun, that's just stupid. Yeah, but people pay like $160,000 to attempt the summit of Mount Everest. And there's like 400 dead bodies up there. And they want to do that. I've met people that absolutely they're addicted to and they cannot stand not being in combat. There was something so alive in the moment and yet many people die in combat. That's type three fun. If you survive it, you have a story to tell. And I'm here to tell you that all adventure, a worthwhile adventure involves a custom blend of all three. Even if it's just a tiny smattering of, oh, that might not have been smart. But I lived through it. And that's my theology of fun. Now, if you would allow me, if I can change the word fun to meaningful or worthwhile, let me ask you, what makes life worth living? What wakes you up in the morning? When, when you've had a good day, what kind of day was that? Did you just sit around eating all day and checks came in the mail and you said that was fun? <laughs> or was there something arduous about it, worthy, and you spent yourself, you gave your life for something? And if you'd allow me to take it one step further, is it possible that this construct could inform our understanding of the Christian faith? That what makes a good follower of Jesus? And I would argue this, that, that this fun theory or theology of fun very much mirrors the various motivations of why people even are in church today. What is it of Jesus and the gospel that you are, are committing to, are interested in? How do you see it? So I believe that it, it explains why there are people that very much understand the gospel probably better than a lot of Christians, and they say, no, thank you. Not for me. It explains why others smorgasbord their Christianity, that they sift through the scriptures and theologies and the teachings, and they go, I like these ones. Type one reasons. And what it does for me. And, and these other things, no thank you. But I will custom blend my own faith. I believe it's why some even sign up for level three and say, I'm all in for Christ. But then the real pain starts. They had calculated that, that suffering for Jesus would look like this. But it comes from over here. And they weren't counting on it. And it starts to hurt. And they say, no thank you. Two weeks back, uh, Pastor Tyler He's away for one more week working on his Ph.D. program, but he dropped this quote by G.K. Chesterton. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. 
I think that there's some that actually try it and say, it's too difficult, I'm out. Still others go all in and go the full distance. What is it that makes the difference between those kinds of Christians, those kinds of followers of Jesus? Would you like to find out this morning? If you'd like to find out, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We are entering a four-week summary or four-week invitation on the Sermon on the Mount. And in order to understand the threefold invitation, the threefold commandment, the threefold warning of Jesus, we absolutely have to include verse 12 that we actually concluded with last week. It's the verse where we get what we call the golden rule from. Whatever you want others to do, or whatever you would like others to do for you, do unto others, right? The, the golden rule was not from Siddhartha, Buddha. It was not from Aristotle or Socrates. It was from Jesus of Nazareth. The golden rule. And, and you go, oh, that's simple. Let's just be empathetic. And yes, empathy is a skill set to try to understand the world through another's eyes and emotions. But if you think it's simple, you're wrong. In fact, we're going to find out here in a moment. But let me read the whole text. Matthew 7, 12 through 14. Okay, ready? So read it in your Bible or it'll be up, up here. All right? So starting in verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Sounds simple, right? For this is the law and the prophets. Uh-oh. The, the law and the prophets are not simple. The rules sound simple, but they are not simple. So we keep going. Enter. So the beginning of the, of the warning and invitation and commandment. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I'm here to tell you once again that unless we understand verse 12, and that this flows out of verse 12, we will not understand verses 13 through 14. And we will simply, those of us who have been in the church 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, will go, oh, oh, that's just a call to the gospel. Pray a prayer of belief, and that's the narrow gate and you're in. And we oversimplify and say, this must mean justification and somehow getting to heaven when we die. And Jesus does not make it that simple and clean. He is inviting every single person that is listening to him at that sermon. He's inviting them to enter right then and there. He is actually commanding them to enter. But what is he inviting them to enter? Go back to verse 12, the golden rule. So let me just spend a little time on verse 12 and, and how that is a linchpin and so important to the final several texts from Jesus. When he says, so, that word so we looked at last week it is the word we get therefore. Therefore, in light of all this other information, therefore... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. What are the law and the prophets? Well, technically, it's the 39 books of the Old Covenant. Okay? Genesis through Malachi. 
And, and then there's the writings that are sandwiched in between that, that designation. And then even for sh a shortened form is just saying the law, which is the Old Testament scriptures. And the idea here is if we could somehow perfectly and completely from the heart love every human being on earth perfectly and we never messed it up, we would have fulfilled the law. This is actually what he's saying, that golden rule. And this is actually a bookend for the sermon itself. In fact, you could take this verse and you could take it as a lens, if you will, and you could go back from, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 in the Beatitudes all the way through the rest of the sermon and you could actually look through this verse and you go, oh, that's what God is requiring of us. That every single part of the sermon is explained that if it doesn't yield a perfect love for God's fellow image bearers, you've failed. You've gotten it wrong. And now I can't go in and demonstrate that, but trust me, absolutely everything from lust and adultery uh, is motivated out of a perfect kind of godly love that we don't have. So it explains everything. But it's also in the, in the, in the uh, structure, in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, you'll see it up here, um, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Genesis through Malachi and everything in between. I didn't come to abolish it. It's still an act. It, it's the, the law of God is perfect. The holiness of God is perfect. The love of God is perfect. And I'm not dumbing it down. Who dumbed it down? The scribes and the Pharisees, and that what he says, said next is unless, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because they thought they had it right, and they knew what it was to do hard and arduous of a sort or a kind. But they had missed it from the heart. So these are bookends of the law and the prophets. Um, Verse 12 ties us into the immediate preceding section, the whole sermon, and then all of the scriptures, and all of the truth of God. That if it comes down to you loving every human on earth perfectly, forgiving perfectly, even, and don't think it makes them like you, and enjoy you, and appreciate you, because Jesus lived perfectly, and loved perfectly, and what did we do to him? We murdered him. So it's not like, wow, he's such a good guy. He treats me how I want to be treated. No, I mean, I mean, it's not a sermon on verse 12, but listen, it's not as easy as just going, eh, just, just treat him with dignity and respect and they'll like you. And that's the golden rule. Oh, no, it's the law and the prophets. It's a narrow way of living. It's a perfect way of living. So it's the righteousness that exceeds, but also in, in chapter 6, we read about, um, and you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to love his image bearers perfect and without end from the heart. This is the law and the prophets. And you go, man, that sounds pretty steep. I have not done that, neither have I. And it sounds like it's exacting, and it sounds like it's impossible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And yet, it's what we were saved for. It's what we are called to. And so when Jesus turns the page and says, enter, 
in a commandment, what is he inviting us to enter? He's inviting us to enter this kind of self-effacing, humble, I don't got what it takes, poor in spirit, but I'm hungering for th- and thirsting after righteousness. I'm hungering for that perfect love that's not only for me and in me, but from me and through me. And I don't have it. And yet Jesus is inviting us into that way of life and thinking that is Sermon on the Mount thinking, that is Law and Prophets thinking. He's inviting us to this lifestyle. We see this reflected. I'm just going to throw these out quickly. Matthew 22, 40, Jesus is being tested uh, by an expert in the law. One of these scribes or Pharisees, and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And the idea behind there, there's 613 laws that you can catalog in the law and the prophets. And rabbis of the first century would order them, what's more important, what's most important, all these things, 613. Jesus boiled them down to two. And said, everything is contained in these two. When he says, on these two commandments, love God supremely. And others, sincerely, on these two commandments depends all of the what? The law and the prophets. Um, That's 2240. Paul would sum it up in the same way. Uh, For the whole law, which is shorthand for law and prophets, is fulfilled one word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. If it doesn't translate into love for neighbor, don't claim that you love God. Okay, and then finally in Romans, owe nothing to anything except, any, except the law, except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's the heartbeat. And here's the idea why he can even shorthand it and say, if it doesn't work out in love for neighbor, it's not real. This is how he shorthands it. And this is my statement. We will never love others truly unless we learn to love God supremely. And we can flip that. And if we learn to love God supremely, we will absolutely love others truly. And then I'm going to add this one more thing. That doesn't mean they're going to like it. Because they didn't like him. Okay? Follow that? So this is the way of life that both brings us to desperation and need, but also holds up the ideal that we beg God, would you please do this in me? We go ahead and we read on. This climactic and summative verse of the golden rule, representing the law and the prophets and all of God's agenda for mankind, right? This is the summative and climactic explanation of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he goes into the threefold invitation, warning, and commandment. Enter. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. There are exactly two gates. So young, young kids in here, Look, there's this like two ways of life, two ways of living. Not one, not three or four, but exactly two. So I want you to imagine everyone is traveling along in Jesus' teaching. 
And Jesus brings every last one of them, the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples, and just the, the looky-loos. And he calls every single one of them to a fork in the road at that moment. Having heard all of the law and the prophets re-explained and the boundaries reset, he's going, you need to make a choice right here, right now. All in or nothing. Um, in the words of Anton LaVey, okay, the founder of the first church of Satan, do as thou wilt. That is the essence of Satanism. Do as, whatever you want. It, they don't think they're worshiping an incarnate devil, a fallen angel. They just say, do what your instincts tell you to do. Just do, make up your mind, make up your own religion, custom blend your own kind of Christianity. It's all the same. You've got a choice to make today. Are you going to go along the path of least resistance and what you like and your preferences, type one fun? Or are you going to say, look, it's narrow, it's hard, but I'm going to obey the commandment, enter, enter into this path that is hard and narrow, yet leads to life. Yeah, look at the descriptions. There's two gates, there's two paths, there's two destinies, and there's two crowds. Okay, one is, it's wide, it's easy, and it leads to destruction, and lots of people are on it. It's just, here's how you get on that path. Do what you're doing. Stay the course. Follow your inborn instincts. You could be even born and raised in a Christian family and just say, yeah, but I just do that. I just do the culture. I just do the family identity. But there's no personal responsibility of taking that step and obeying Jesus firsthand to enter wide, easy, destruction, and many. And then there's narrow, hard, but there's life, and there's few. These are two ways of thinking and being in the world. This binary understanding, that means two, like uh, computer code, zeros and ones, binary. This binary teaching is taught all throughout the law and the prophets. It's the same. In fact, I'm going to reverse these two, Eli. Um, throw up the law, Deuteronomy. This is Moses. Deuteronomy, verse, coming up here really quick. Um, 30, verse 19. You got that? Sorry, I'm putting her on the spot. I shouldn't do that. There it is. So this is from the law. This is Moses. At the end of his ministry, before he's going to pass it on, to Joshua, and they're going to go in the promised land. This is what he says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Those are synonyms. And it's binary, not trinary, or quaternary, or quintinary. It's two choices. And there looks like a bunch of other gods that you could consider, but in the end, or no God, but in the end, it's the same thing. He says, God is God, and the way is the way, or everything else gets lumped into that other category. And then jump into the, the classic prophet, 1 Kings. Think about this. Uh, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who showed up next to him? Little, little pop Bible quiz. Moses and Elijah, right? So this is Elijah. Moses did the Deuteronomy scripture, Elijah, because he's the lawgiver, and this is the archetype prophet of the whole Bible. 
said this at Mount Carmel to the people of Israel. He said to them before he called down fire from heaven to consume the altar and then they killed the prophets of Baal. He says this in his teaching. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Not three, not four, not five. Two. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, do that. And then it says they did not answer him a word. Why? Because they were hoping to put it off. But here's the deal. Putting it off is a decision against in this instance. Elijah was calling them to enter the narrow gate. That Yahweh and Yahweh alone is God. And yet they were silent like, I don't know. Baal can do some cool stuff, I think. Let's just hold off. And then you know the rest of the story. Here's the deal. There's, there's only two gates. There's only two ways. And everything that is not the narrow gate is lumped into the other category. Everything from atheism to Satanism to custom blending your own religion in Jesus' name. And saying, I like these parts, but I don't do these parts. That's all over there. The narrow gate is very narrow. And the way is actually hard. So, C.S. Lewis said this in The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And this is what's presented. I don't have to like it. It's just what's the law, the prophets, and the gospels. There's only two. Only two choices in the end. Here's the bottom line that I want to convince you of. If I could, only, only the Holy Spirit can do this. I've asked him to do that as well. But the bottom line for our message today is there's no better way of life than the way or the hard way that leads to life. So what if it's hard? It leads to life. Are we so allergic to hard that we would choose death and cursing and destruction? The word for destruction in the Greek is apolia, where you get the name Apollyon, which is the destroyer, Satan. Apollia, you don't want that. But it's easy. You, you can kind of make it up as you go. You get what you want, when you want it, where you want it, how you want it. Instead of God, only your way, and even if it's a hard way, I want your way. There's no better way of life than the hard way that leads to life. Now, what makes it so narrow and so hard? That's a question, okay? So here's some, some ideas or questions, further questions. Does it mean that like, I got I to gotta sacrifice a bunch? I got to give. I got to perform spiritually, there's lots of duties that I've got to muscle out even when I don't want to. There's a lot of fun things I've got to say no to. I've got to earn this by things I give up. Or there are religious duties that I've got to, got to memorize a lot, and I've got to quote a lot, and I've got to preach a lot. i got to. And I want you to put the whole thing back into its context. The Sermon on the Mount was primarily a teaching not for sacrilegious, irreligious, carnal, sinful people that like to just party like rock stars. And they loved adultery. 
openly. No. It was first for first century good Jews, including the scribes and the Pharisees. And their brand of righteousness included lots of sacrifice and lots of duty and lots of heavy lifting religiously. Lots of good works. And Jesus is actually saying that's not going to work. It doesn't work. So don't be lulled into thinking that the narrow gate has a lot to do with good works or sacrificing a lot of things that you enjoy. Because that's what they did professionally and religiously. And he goes, you got to do better than that. So just you got to supply that context back in. When he says, enter the narrow gate, what does he mean? What makes it so narrow and what makes the hard way so hard? First off, it is Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 17, that says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You know what a door is? A gate. And then a couple chapters later, John 14, 16, he said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. What kind of way do you go through? A gate. And guess what? Jesus is very narrow. Jesus is very exclusive. There are not many saviors and many paths. Okay, there's not many, many ways to achieve enlightenment. There is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is singular, he is exclusive, and yes, he is demanding. What is it that he's so demanding about? He is demanding about what we choose to believe. About four things. Sin, self, righteousness or true goodness, and about himself. Jesus demands that when we come to ourself, we need to agree, I am not God. I am not the captain of my ship. When it comes to sin, we need to agree that it's icky. Hey, let me tell you, sin is a rush. Kick in the pants, man. You get that stuff in you, and you're infected, and you're addicted, and you want deeper and dirtier and more, and grungy sin is very intoxicating and appealing. But you cannot come through the narrow gate while loving your sin. Follow me here. You cannot at the same time want to be saved from it and somehow keep it. Including your own pride, your own appetites, your own ego. You can't take sin through the narrow gate. It's too narrow for that. You got to leave it behind. It's not to say that you're not going to sin. But you cannot love it and say, I want to be saved, but I don't want to leave it either. No deal. Jesus, you must believe that Jesus is God, that he is the Savior, that he lived a perfect life, that he died vicariously on behalf of all human beings on the cross, that he rose again from the dead. You must believe that. Or there is no Savior. There is no narrow narrow gate passage for you. And then finally, uh, true goodness and true righteousness. You can't, it's back to sin. You can't be saying, yeah, but this is acceptable, but this is good. No, you just go, look, I'm messed up in my thinking. I'm a product of my culture. I know that I get infected with bad thinking. Therefore, the word of God is what is going to tell me what is true and not true, good or bad. 
And that is the narrowness of the narrow gate that Jesus invites us into. And if a person embraces these truths in choosing to enter, they come literally stripped naked and alone. And that's actually a fill in the blank here. We enter individually and humbly or not at all. Individually and humbly. We are not the boss. We, are not, we don't broker a deal. We don't bargain with God. We come just as we are, naked and alone. This is what makes the way of Jesus so difficult. I was born a sinner. Born into sin. Born a son of Adam, the first rebel besides Lucifer himself, but the first human rebel. My natural instinct is to doubt, question, betray, and usurp God's rightful authority as the king of the universe or the king of my own life. I want his crown. I want my way. I want what I want, where I want it, how I want it, and when I want it. I believe I'm better at ruling the universe than he is. When I see myself as flawed and imperfect and sinful, if I can get that far and say I'm bad, guess what I want to do? I want to prove that I'm not that bad and make it up with my own self-righteousness. I want to earn my own salvation. I'm so messed up. And so not only when we come to the narrow gate do we just drop all this ego and self and sin, we also have to drop our self-righteousness and goodness and pride. This was the sin of the Pharisees. They couldn't see themselves as flawed enough to need a savior. And so this is the narrow way. We either come as we are or not at all. We come humbly. We come humbly. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. No bargaining or demanding. We also come alone. Listen, being in a Christian family is so wonderful but God has no grandchildren. You come firsthand. That's why we admire those who come out of Christian families and out of the world, but it doesn't mean that Christian conversion within Christian families is not real. It's just dangerous for a child to think, oh yeah, we always went to church, and I kind of do that thing. We come stripped of our own self as well as being just a member of a family. we got to come individually. We don't come by family affiliation, religious creed, ethnicity, culture, or nationality. We don't come collectively or together. We come alone. I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember the song? I, not we. That's good. We can sing it together, but this point of coming through the gate is I. And I love the other part of that song, though none go with me, still I will follow, individually. Christian families are wonderful. I'm so grateful for where I came from. I think I'm a miracle that my heart is soft towards the things of God because I, I am very familiar with what I describe as church, a church brat heart. Cold, indifferent, uncaring, we call them the frozen chosen. Okay, it's so dangerous, so wonderful, but we must come firsthand and come alone. So not only do we enter the, 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 the narrow gate with a righteousness, we need a righteousness greater than that of the scribes of the Pharisees. It's not duty, but it's 
It's humility and brokenness saying, I need a Savior. I can't measure up. And Jesus is that Savior, period, end of sentence. That's how we come. But what makes the, the way beyond the gate so hard? We are told to embrace this hard way. It's hard because it continues to be an affront to my own personal autonomy, my own pride. My, my, I still have ego. I still have a, a will. I still want options. I still have wayward and fleshly desires. I still demand dignity and honor from others. My instinct is continually to doubt and betray and usurp and steal his authority and his crown. And sometimes I actually do that. The hard way is also a very messy way. We drag the old nature with us. Even if we don't want it, we're saying, I thought I left you outside. And it's like a zombie that keeps coming back to life and trying to take over my life. And I must keep humble and dependent. And when someone sees the zombie, my sin nature expressing itself, guess what I get to do? Say, yeah, I did that. I'm, yeah, please pray for me. Because I'm still a very sinful person. And that kind of humility, we, we like, we want, I, I've been 35 years in this church. Don't you disrespect me. You know, this is what, what the, the old nature wants to do, this prideful pushback, this rebel rampage. It's still there, and yet the way, the, the, the hard way is the humble way. You go, yeah, I still put my foot in my mouth every Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. So it's a very humbling affront to my pride, this hard way that I'm called to embrace. And I'm a mess. I'm a mess, but I love the hard way because it's the way that leads to life. Can I tell you about that hard way? The hard way is the messy way, but guess what? It's the only way that's paved in grace. We say yes to the righteous standard of the law and the prophets. We say yes to it, and we say, and no, I can't do it. But I continually am in repentance. That means change my mind about my own self and the way I'm doing things and saying things and saying, yeah, I did it wrong again. It's a very humble, humble and messy way. But the grace is so good along the hard way. Let me tell you about a guy named Peter. Peter was the outspoken person of the 12 disciples. And Peter promised, promised, promised. John chapter 13, he promised he would never deny Christ. He would even die for Christ. And Jesus said, no, you're wrong. You will deny me. Let not your heart be troubled. You will deny me. Let not your heart be troubled. And sure enough, at the, the uh, arrest of Jesus of Nazareth, and Peter and the disciples scattering, Peter tried to keep his promise and stayed close, but when pushed and caught and say, you were with him, he said, no, I wasn't. And he even used some, some choice explicatives to talk trash so that he would actually really sound like he was not a follower of Jesus. G-D-M-F, I don't know what he said, but it's pretty bad. And he did it three times. This is now after the fact. And by the way, he's been following Jesus. 
the narrow gate for three and a half years. And he comes down to this moment that he said he wouldn't do and he does it. And now Jesus is crucified and three days later he's resurrected. He appears a few times and he says, peace, my peace I leave with you. But he doesn't interact with Peter directly. And so they're up in the Sea of Galilee. A couple weeks later, Jesus has not yet ascended. And it says here in John chapter 21, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. This is crazy. My life has been a blur for the last three and a half years, and I'm a mess. And I think I'm good for nothing. I think I'm going to go back to my old business. That's what I think he's saying. I'm going fishing. And guess what? The rest of them said, hey, we'll come with too. Besides, we don't know where Jesus is. He shows up every once in a while. And it says to them, it says here in John 21, 3, they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Why? Because Peter thinks he's in the doghouse, in the penalty box. He thinks that he's had the final DQ, disqualification. He knows Jesus is good. He loves Jesus. He believes in Jesus, but he goes, yeah, but I royally blew it. I'm done. And the scripture says about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Messiah, the Christ, prophesied in Isaiah 42 and cited in Matthew 12, listen to this up on the screen, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flax he will not quench. How many of you know what a bruised reed means? You take a cattail and it's bent, it won't stand upright anymore. And it's like, what good is this? I can't hit anyone with it. It's not fun like to pretend like it's a hot dog being roasted on a stick. It's just like, it's just, it's bruised. And the idea of being a person that's like that broken, you're not totally separated and dead, but you're just messed up. It's messy. You've not kept the law and the prophets. You claim to be a Christian, but you're so messed up. You're a bruised reed. Who knows what it's like to be a bruised reed? Okay, smoldering flax. You know what that means? It's a wick that's not getting wax anymore. And now the wick is actually burning, and the fire went out, and now it's just kind of embers and smoke and a little bit of glow that's just burning down and, and just destroying the, the flax wick. Your passion, your love for Jesus, your hope, your faith is so low that you're just a smoking husk. How many of you know what it's like to be a smoking husk? Yeah, what if I were to tell you Jesus is so mad at you? He wants to break you and snuff you out. Man, you need to like get hot for Jesus or he doesn't want you. You're in the penalty box. That's not who Jesus is. Isaiah 42 and, Mar and Luke uh, or Matthew 12. A, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering flax he will not extinguish. That's who he is. And so we have the account of Peter, and it says here in John 21, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They don't know it's Jesus. They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you will find some. So they cast it in. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They remember he did this at the beginning of his ministry when he called them, Peter says, it's the Lord. He dives in the water, or no, John dives in the water. Everyone else rows the boat to shore. And the next scene we have is Jesus doing a one-on-one -on -one with Peter, letting him know how, know how much he loves him and how much he wants him 
to take and, and to take responsibility for. And Jesus individually, personally, and directly confronts his denials and restores him. And that's called grace. And I want to tell you something. We go, and then, and then Pentecost, he preached, and 5,000 people came to Christ, and Peter never did a bad thing ever again. Did you read Paul's letter to the Galatian church? Do you know this rascal, what he did? He was a hypocrite later on, and guess who rebuked him? Some Johnny-come-lately punk apostle named Paul rebukes the fire out of Peter, the great man of God. And guess what Peter gets to do on the hard way? Say, oh, crud, you're right. Ouch, I did do that. It's a narrow way. That's the hard path of humility. That is the story of repentance and living in repentance. And that's what makes the narrow gate so narrow and the hard path so hard. But guess what? There's no better way of life than the hard way that leads to life. What's your other choice? Self? Pride? Ego? Custom blend your own flavor of the day? Mix in plenty of politics. Have fun with that. Plenty of condemnation and shame for others. You know, they say that other-centered contempt is always indicative of what? Self-centered contempt. That when we're so preachy and judgy, we actually know we got a little secret ourselves. And yet the hard way, the narrow way, is a humble way that in the end produces a love for God and a genuine do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Law and prophets kind of love. It's the hard way. Guess what? It not only leads to heaven, it leads to flourishing and the abundant life right now. What if Jesus were here repeating this today and he said, enter? Would you enter? Are you all in? What if there ain't a bunch of type one fun to it? Are you still in? Yeah, there's going to be hard things, arduous things, and good things. But what if there are some costly and ultimate things? And he says, I want you to give up your life. Type three. Are you still in? Here's the deal. Yes, those who find it are few. But he didn't say that there aren't any. And yes, we come through the narrow gate alone and naked. But guess what? On the other side... Jesus himself is that gate. The Holy Spirit is with you. And guess what? There's some wonderful, wonderful pilgrims on that road as well. It's called the church. That you don't do it alone. And that's why we need each other. The hard way, the good way. Those who are few and yet there is life. No better way of life than the hard way that leads to life. Amen? We're going to take communion in just a moment. But first we're going to sing a song. Can I pray for us? Lord, there's a lot of details, a lot of other questions that this drums up that we can't answer right now, but we do have your word, we have your spirit, we have each other. And Lord, the number one thing is that we would say, hey, even if it's hard, even if it means humility and brokenness, I'm in. Couldn't do it on my own anyway. Lord, we receive you fully right now. We enter.
We abide. Thank you for your amazing grace that is so good along this difficult path. Thank you for restoring our hearts. Thank you for your gentleness and kindness that doesn't break a bruised reed or extinguish a, a smoldering wick. Thank you for being gentle and lowly. Thank you for being with us along this path that leads to life. And oh, we can't wait. Not only the life that we're experiencing now, but Lord, life eternal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.